0: All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today I will be beginning a two part series on pressers. Please note that the content of this episode has not been reviewed by any fellow or attending, but is based heavily and directly on two papers a 2008 review paper from the journal Circulation and a 2014 review paper from an emergency medicine journal called the Emergency Medicine Clinics of North America. I will provide detailed citations at the end. I was not able to get the content endorsed because when you ask Pulmcrit fellows and attendings to talk about any topic, whether it's the management of pulmonary embolism, the utility of the hypothermia protocol and cardiac arrest, ARDS management, pressors, or anything else, things become very controversial very quickly and it becomes an endless debate about interpreting the primary literature. I'm not at all trying to wade into that. I'm just trying to get a feel for the basics regarding the agents used to treat shock. Hopefully, that's what I've done in these two episodes. If you're looking for an exhaustive discussion and careful interpretation of the latest clinical trials about pressors, please look elsewhere. Alright, here we go. Okay, broadly speaking, to master vasopressors, the two things we need to understand are the types of shock and the types of agents we have available to treat shock. I'm going to presuppose you have some familiarity with the various types of shock, which I will just briefly review here. They can be broken up in different ways, but basically you can have hypovolemic shock, you can have cardiogenic shock, or you can have distributive shock. Those categories capture the mechanisms of shock. Either there isn't enough fluid in the vascular system, the pump isn't working, or the vascular system is so dilated that blood pressure is not maintained. The other types of shock you may have heard of all fit into one or more of the preceding categories. Neurogenic shock and anaphylactic shock, for instance, are generally considered forms of distributive shock, and septic shock, of course, is the most common and well-known form of distributive shock though all three of the aforementioned types of distributive shock may sometimes have components of hypovolemic or cardiogenic shock, so assessing exactly what type or types of shock are present in a given patient can be tricky. Some sources will break out a fourth major category of shock as obstructive shock, but you could argue that that's still cardiogenic shock just due to an extra cardiac cause like massive PE or severe pulmonary hypertension but I won't get into all that here. Maybe I'll do a separate episode just on shock at some point, but for this two-part series, I want to keep our focus on the agents used to treat shock. To understand the agents used to treat shock, the first thing we really have to get down are the adrenergic receptors. You know, the alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2 stuff. I've always found this stuff inherently difficult to remember, but there's just no getting around it it's essential to at least remember the basic associations, so let's clearly go through them here. Fortunately, the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor we can more or less ignore in the context of shock, but the others we have to know. So remember, alpha-1 adrenergic receptors are found throughout the blood vessels and cause vasoconstriction. Beta-1 adrenergic receptors are found in the heart and cause increased contractility that's the inotropic effect, and increased heart rate, that's the chronotropic effect. And finally, beta-2 adrenergic receptors cause vasodilation, which generally is not what we want in shock, and in fact is often the cause of shock, as we see in distributive shock. So again, alpha-1 equals vasoconstriction, beta-1 equals the heart, beta-2 equals vasodilation. Of course, these receptors do have other effects. For instance, the beta-2 adrenergic receptors famously cause bronchodilation in addition to vasodilation. That's why we give albuterol. But the associations I just mentioned, alpha-1 vasoconstriction, beta-1 the heart, and beta-2 vasodilation are the associations that are relevant in the treatment of shock. So let's use our familiarity with those receptors and their functions to go ahead and start talking about individual agents used in the treatment of shock. The catecholamines make up many of the major players here. Recall the catecholamines are hormones produced by the adrenal gland and include epinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline, and norepinephrine, otherwise known as noradrenaline. Norepinephrine also has a trade name, levophed, People in the ICU will often just refer to it as levo, by which they do not mean levofloxacin or levothyroxine, they mean levofed, which is norepinephrine, the presser. The catecholamines to remember regarding the treatment of shock are primarily dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. These three agents are endogenous catecholamines and make up the last three steps on the catecholamine synthesis pathway, which, to quickly review, starts with... Phenylalanine then proceeds as follows, tyrosine, L-dopa, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Again, only those last three, epinephrine, which is synthesized from norepinephrine, which is synthesized from dopamine, are catecholamines and are used in the treatment of shock. Tyrosine and L-dopa are merely catecholamine precursors. Then there are three additional agents that are sometimes called synthesized catecholamines because they're structurally very similar. You may also see them called sympathomimetics because they mimic the effects of drugs that stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, that is, the catecholamines. The three important sympathomimetic drugs used in the treatment of shock are dobutamine, isoproterenol, and phenylephrine. I'm literally going to devote the rest of this episode just to getting these six drugs straight. In the next episode, part two of this little series on pressers, I'll discuss the handful of other drugs also used in shock, and I'll try to mention a few common clinical scenarios and suggest how some of the drugs might be used. But for this episode, let's just try to get these drugs straight, since they form the core of the arsenal used in shock. One way to think about these drugs is as existing on a spectrum ranging from predominantly alpha-1 stimulation to predominantly beta-stimulation. Now, if you keep in mind which ones are endogenous and which ones are synthetic, you can reason as follows to help remember which ones are which. Again, the following is purely a memory aid. So you can think, the body is a messy, organic place way more complicated than it needs to be after millions of years of evolution, so the endogenous catecholamines tend to be the ones that affect multiple receptors to varying degrees. Norepinephrine, which I'll just call levofed since that's what you seem to hear more often in the ICU, affects alpha-1 receptors more than it affects beta receptors, but it does affect them all. And epinephrine is more balanced, but it still affects them all, and dopamine affects them all, and in a really complicated way depending on the dose, and it affects other receptors entirely, which I'll discuss. So the endogenous catecholamines are messy and complicated in that sense. The synthetic catecholamines, on the other hand, are, you can think of as being more pure, which is not to say better, but their effects are more specific. You can imagine that they were designed by humans to be that way. So phenylephrine affects only the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor, and it doesn't stimulate the beta receptors at all. Or if it does, its effect is totally negligible. Similarly, isoprotironol is a non-selective beta agonist, sort of the opposite of the non-selective beta blockers like propranolol, and it stimulates both the beta-1 and beta-2 receptors quite a bit, but it doesn't affect the alpha-1 receptor at all. So you can see how the synthetic catecholamines are much cleaner in that sense than the endogenous ones are. Again, I'm not trying to imply that they're better agents, but just that their effects are more precise in terms of the receptors affected. Even dobutamine, which you can kind of think of as the synthetic counterpart to dopamine, sort of fits this same logic in that, though it does affect all three adrenergic receptors, it doesn't affect the dopamine receptors the way dopamine does. So it too is cleaner than its endogenous counterpart. Hopefully all that serves as a way to at least begin to remember the distinctions between each of these drugs. Now let's think about what the effect or effects of each drug should be on the body based on what we know about the receptors and their functions, and hopefully that will help reinforce what each drug does and why. But I did mention dopamine receptors And so far, we've only discussed what the adrenergic receptors do. So let me briefly describe what the dopamine receptors do, and then we'll quickly talk about each drug one by one. Okay, dopamine receptors do a lot. Their locations are maybe the main thing to remember. They're found in the renal, splanchnic, and coronary vasculature, as well as in the CNS. Suffice to say that stimulation of dopamine receptors causes vasodilation and so can increase blood flow to the kidney, mesenteric organs, heart, and brain. Okay, now let's talk about the six pressors I keep mentioning, the endogenous catecholamines dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, and the synthetic catecholamines dobutamine, isoproterenol and phenylephrine. And just to keep things as simple as possible, let's go in exactly that order. The first one is the most complicated. The famous thing about dopamine's use as a pressor, and the question you're likely to get pimped on, or to shine like a star if you know, is its complicated dose-response relationship. That is, even more than the other pressors, its impact on the patient depends very much on the dose at which it's administered. Because, as we said, it affects all three of the relevant types of adrenergic receptor, and it affects the dopamine receptors, which are complicated in themselves, but how that all plays out depends on the dose. At low infusion rates, the thought is that the dopamine receptors, primarily D1 and D2, are stimulated, but the adrenergic receptors are not. So you see the dilation of renal, mesenteric, cerebral, and coronary vessels, but that's it. They call this the renal dose of dopamine. This renal dose of dopamine apparently has finally been totally debunked as having any clinical significance whatsoever. There's no situation where dopamine is used or is useful to help improve blood flow to the kidneys, but nevertheless, this dose-response relationship has been talked about for a long time, so it's still something you have to be aware of. So let's continue. At an intermediate dose of dopamine, you start to get beta-1 adrenergic receptor stimulation. What does beta-1 do? It affects the heart, so you see some increased contractility and chronotropy. Then at high doses, you get alpha-1 adrenergic receptor activity, which of course causes widespread vasoconstriction. So that's the little triad to remember for dopamine, the renal slash splank stuff at a low infusion rate, beta-1 stuff at an intermediate rate, and alpha-1 stuff at a high rate of infusion. In practice, the effect you see in the patient depends on the patient and is fairly unpredictable, but obviously if you're using dopamine in shock, you're going to be looking for those adrenergic effects, and so you'll want to transfuse the patient at a somewhat higher rate. You'd look like an idiot if you were giving 0.5 mics per kg per minute when the intermediate range starts at 3 and the high range goes from 10 to 20 mics per kg per minute. Okay, so that's dopamine, and don't worry, none of the rest are as complicated as that. The next one is perhaps the most important, because, as I will emphasize in the next episode, it's typically your first go-to presser in shock, although that's kind of a dangerous and controversial statement. But what we're talking about is levofed or norepinephrine. Levofed is endogenous, so it kind of affects all the adrenergic receptors a little bit, But the key to remember is that it really stimulates the alpha ones while only modestly stimulating the beta ones and beta twos that means it causes predominantly vasoconstriction without affecting the heart as much or put another way it causes increases in systolic diastolic and pulse pressure without having much of an impact on cardiac output You'll see as we go on that one of the main issues people run into with pressors is the risk of tachyarrhythmia. Levophed doesn't affect the heart as much, so that risk is lower than it is in, say, epinephrine, which is part of the reason levophed is so often first-line. Let's move on to epinephrine. Everybody knows epinephrine from EpiPens. Epinephrine is the first thing you give, and all you should really need in an anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock. While levofed was tipped more towards the alpha-adrenergic side, epinephrine affects all the adrenergic receptors quite strongly. This leads to what you'd expect, vasoconstriction from the alpha-1s, positive inotropy from the beta-1s, and bronchodilation from the beta-2s. The vasodilatory effect of the beta-2s is sort of overridden here by the alpha-1 activity, but the bronchodilation is still there. And, just as we saw in dopamine, epinephrine does exhibit some dose dependence. At lower doses, it affects the beta-adrenergic receptors more, while at higher doses, it affects the alpha-adrenergic receptors more. Okay, let's run through the sympathomimetics, or the synthesized catecholamines, Dobutamine, as I mentioned before, is sort of like dopamine without the stimulation of the dopamine receptors. It's actually quite similar to our next drug, isoproteranol, in that it very strongly favors the beta-adrenergic receptors, especially beta-1, while barely stimulating the alpha-adrenergic receptors. So what should that do? That should increase the inotropic and chronotropic activity of the heart, primarily. This may increase myocardial oxygen consumption so much that it stresses the heart, which is why you may, and you do, see it given in pharmacologic stress tests. It is a very powerful stimulator of cardiac output. Isoproturinol, as I just mentioned, is similar, but even cleaner than dobutamine in that it doesn't affect the alpha-adrenergic system at all, whereas dobutamine does, but very weakly. And lastly, there's phenylephrine, which is an interesting drug. It has pure alpha-1 adrenergic activity and no beta activity at all. This means it's sort of the ultimate vasoconstrictor, and that's how it's used. It rapidly increases SVR, or systemic vascular resistance, and so can be given in a bolus to correct sudden severe hypotension. You may recall that you should never take Viagra and nitrates at the same time because of the severe hypotension that can result. Well, if it does happen, phenylephrine is a great drug to correct that. It's also used to correct anesthesia or intubation-induced hypotension, for example. Now, for all of these drugs, the body is still paying attention to what's happening and responding accordingly if it can. So when phenylephrine causes a sudden vasoconstriction and increase in SVR, you often do see a baroreceptor-mediated response, that is, a reflex bradycardia. That's not phenylephrine having any direct effect on heart rate, that's just the body reacting to phenylephrine's effect on the vasculature. And the other drugs can lead to physiologic responses too, which is another reason why this whole topic is so complicated and difficult to master in clinical practice but at least we've got a grasp of the basic mechanisms of the catecholamines and their synthesized counterparts. In episode two, we'll finish our discussion of agents and we'll briefly discuss some common disorders, septic shock, post arrest, decompensated heart failure, etc., where they're used. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available now on many different podcasting platforms, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. And as promised, here are fuller citations of the two review articles primarily relied upon for this and the upcoming episode. The 2008 article from Circulation is entitled Inotropes and Vasopressors, Review of Physiology and Clinical Use in Cardiovascular Disease. The authors are Christopher B. Overgaard and Vladimir Zavik, which is spelled D Z A V I K Zavik. The twenty fourteen article from the Emergency Medicine Clinical Journal of North America is just called Pressors and Inotropes and the authors are Joe Cantor with a K and Peter de D E B L I E U X. Alright then, see you next time.